actually the solution to our problems is not to invent AI that will solve everything, but actually just to repair the sewers. Greetings, hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now, loosely defined. He's Adrian Daub. She's Laura Good. Oh, he picked it. Did you see how he picked that up without my even prepping him? I roll with it. He rolled with it. Adrian, what's going on? What are we doing here today? We are uh, introducing yet another amazing episode, and I hope that people have settled into our little series of film club episodes because there is an abrupt change in pace because uh, this is not a film episode. <laughs> a Shyamalan twist. Just as you got comfortable. <laughs> a true Shyamalan twist. Uh, <sighs> Shyamalan, how come we haven't talked about any M. Night Shyamalan yeah. um, movies? Do you want to? I kind of do now that we're talking. I mean, I've been having like, because of this series that we're doing, I've been having like 90s syndrome everywhere we go, where like last night I was sort of half watching my best friend's wedding and I was like, oh, that would be an amazing discussion piece. And like, I've been you know, rewatching Clueless a lot. Clueless just came on HBO Max, so I've been thinking about that. Obviously, we've got that all slotted out already. We still haven't found anyone who is as obsessed with fried green tomatoes as I am. Anyway, I, I've been having more 90s thoughts. you got to find the right person for this. Yes. And we can finally say that we're going to be talking to our good friend Sarah Marshall and Alex yes. Steed about reversal of fortune which can we i mean i know it's a little bit of a detour but just because i did not know that this film existed until we started having this conversation so we can give people some prep time what is reversal of fortune and why are we watching it so it is a movie let's say that that landed probably pretty differently when it was made or even as little as five years ago than it does now it is a movie about the sonny von bulo case uh so the famous well, was it a murder? We don't know, mm -hmm. but it was probably a murder mm -hmm. investigation in, I believe, Rhode Island in the 1980s. Okay. Klaus von Bülow was accused of having uh, murdered his wife, Sonny, with insulin. And it's based on the book, Reversal by Fortune, by noted defense attorney and person, you know, whose bio has not in any way soured in recent years, Alan Dershowitz. So that's great. <laughs> Person of interest, Alan Dershowitz. You'll note we did not say friend of the podcast. Definitely not a friend of the podcast. Um, <laughs> friend of the podcast, Sarah Marshall, will be coming in to talk about sorry. Alan Dershowitz's reversal yes. of fortune. The, yes. the, the number of people who are friends of Jeffrey Epstein's who are also friends of the podcast is zero. That uh, Venn diagram yeah. does not exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a great little tantalizing teaser for what's to come. It's starring Jeremy Irons as a... You know, the, the man you get to play if you definitely didn't do it. Um, <laughs> a, a guy who probably, if you ordered like pizza, you're like, did you kill someone oh, that for this pizza? Be, that should be on his IMDb page. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. So for those of you who are following along with our loose limbed syllabus at home, you have Reversal of Fortune. This would be a great time to watch Clueless if you haven't watched Bram Stoker's Dracula recently. It is always a good day to watch Bram Stoker's <laughs> Dracula. Just really, you know, any day of the week. You know, since we endeavored upon that journey at your urging, it has opened up a new wing of Dracula related conversations in my life. Like it has, it has revealed a whole host of Dracula heads that I did not know to be so until endeavoring upon oh, yeah. this with you so i'm so glad and um what else i feel like i'm forgetting something oh oh now and then now couldn't and then. be a better time to watch now and that now is the time to watch now and then now then <laughs> um so anyway that's what we've got on our syllabus for now but today we are setting all of that aside the the concept of film the concept of of contemporary art we are setting all of that aside in favor of valuable lessons from the past that were way more interesting to me than i would have thought they had been if you had described them to me in 10 words that might be right so i'll hand it over to adrian to do a more official introduction but we have joining us a person who i refer to as nerd 
royalty, Annalie Newitz. That's fair. Who is such an interesting and interdisciplinary person. They are a scholar. They are a science journalist. They are a, like, the go on. Please continue the bio, Adrian. I mean, the bio is staggering. Right. Uh, it really is. That's why I kind of cut myself off and handed it to someone with notes. Yeah, literally. So Annalie has a PhD in English and American studies and wrote a wonderful academic book about film that uh, that was published. is very good, uh, but worked as culture editor at the SF Bay Guardian, which is one of those like yes. amazing independent <sighs> newspapers in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the co-founders of io9, which is the Gawker family of products, right. uh, science fiction blog, or science fiction, you know, arm really, publishing arm, also co-founder of uh, of Gizmodo, or it was editor-in-chief, I believe, of Gizmodo, which is sort of Gawker's technology blog, is now, I believe, still the editor of Ars Technica, and is a an yeah. author of many amazing mm-hmm. uh, essays. And a podcaster. Annalie co-hosts Our Opinions Are Correct with Charlie Jane Anders. And is a novelist. Uh, I first read a book called Autonomous, uh, which was amazing. And they stopped by Stanford and promoted that. Promoted that. that was amazing. Uh, more recently, and I haven't read this one, to be honest, is The Future of Another Timeline. Um, great title. I've not read it. All of this bio is before we're even what we're even here to talk right. about, too. That's how impressive Annalie is. <laughs> the academic book now I'm, I'm, I'm remembering is called Pretend We're Dead Capitalist Monsters in American Pop Culture. Uh-huh. And there are such nonfiction works as Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. So very, very cheerful stuff there. And then the book that we'll be talking about today, which came out this year with Norton, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Totally. So in Four Lost Cities, Annalie covers, as the title may suggest, Four Lost Cities that I have really never, like I knew almost nothing about this going into this conversation ah. and reading their book. Though I I am so loath to try to pronounce the cities. Suffice it to say, the cities that they cover in this book are in what is now central Turkey, on Italy's southern coast, in Cambodia, and in the indigenous metropolis Cahokia, which is beside the Mississippi River where St. Louis is today in the United States. So I think it's Chatal Huyuk is the oh, in Turkey. Oh, a bolder yeah. man than I. Well, I've been there. And then Angkor and, and Cambodia, which I've also been to, uh, and it's totally staggering. Uh, Pompeii in, in southern Italy, mm-hmm. and Cahokia, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, just outside of St. Louis. Right. So Annalie just managed to school us so hard on like sort of what lessons of urban life can be derived from the stories of these ancient cities and the archaeological expeditions to explore them. Like, what did you take away from this conversation, Adrian, or what was surprising or interesting to you about it? Well, the the fact that, you know, the very premise of the book, she means to complicate really the question of what it means for a city to be lost. Yes. And I think we got to a place in the interview where the political investments of considering cities lost and capable of rediscovery mm-hmm. or alternatively, and that's the view that Annalie and most of the archaeologists that they interviewed for the book come down on, whether or not we consider cities as essentially changing shape, right? Not being in a position to build the kinds of buildings that we expect anymore, but still existing for all intents and purposes for their inhabitants. So I think that I loved getting to to pick their brain mm-hmm. about the way a certain kind of archaeology and a certain kind of imaginary about cities, both their the way they came together and the way they leave history mm-hmm. in a certain mm-hmm. way, how that's really bound up with politics and bound up with gender and bound up with white supremacy and bound up with Eurocentrism. Power and privilege. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we ended up kind of thinking about the, the investment in certain corners of the United States mm-hmm. and considering American cities essentially lost. You know, uh, we, we right, too right. live in a city that we're told every three years is over and everyone's leaving it. And, you know, it's hard for us not to sort of be like, you know, as what is it that King Henry IV says, a wish was father to that thought, right? Like, it's like, you, you'd like that, <laughs> wouldn't you? But it turns out we're still here. Um, and, you yeah. know, as long as our baguette and sourdough are accessible, like, we're not, we're not moving. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on one of the things that was really resonant and remarkable to me from this conversation, too, which is how much the question of who decides what cities are lost and when also, like, how if we 
complicate that question, it also allows us to complicate the question of what cities are like found or extant or whatever. And as you say, San Francisco, depending on who you ask, has been lost many times over at this point, and yet here we are sitting here recording there. Yeah, just just today, you know. <laughs> anyway, that was a spectacularly elegant way of putting something that that Annalie put much better, which is that the lifeblood of a city is always dependent on infrastructure, and that infrastructure is always dependent on laborers. And so, in a lot of ways, the persistence of a city has a lot more to do with what kind of resources we're allocating to like sewage and sewage maintenance than it does to what the latest app is. Not that anybody in... Yeah, or who, who, who's building a giant skyscraper? Right. Not that anybody in San Francisco ever spends any time talking about new apps or new extremely phallic skyscrapers. Um, so anyway, I was really um, taken by how interesting and how fresh and how surprising Annalie remixed a lot of information in this book and in this conversation. Yeah, me too. And I should say that if you stick around till the end, in fact, it does take kind of a film club in, in a twist upon oh, a twist. It kind of does point. take us in back point. into a Hollywood direction. That's true. And the question of what's our investment in seeing cities destroyed in ways in which, you know, the specialists from Annalie Newitz to the people they talk to in order to research this book, mm -hmm. um, tell us that that's not how cities die. Very rarely, even even Pompeii, right, which is the, mm -hmm. the clearest candidate for this, where, you know, it's a fucking volcano, right? Like, that's fairly cataclysmic. Even that, it turns out the Romans were like, eh, do we, or do we rebuild this? Do we not rebuild this? And like, you know, there was a, a political process that played out around whether or not the city would survive. And eventually, they, some form of it did, uh, and some parts of it did not. Mm -hmm. It's hard to listen to that and not make connections to, like, who decides whether it's worth it to make sure Flint, Michigan has clean water or concerns like that. <laughs> yeah, and who will decide one day whether we give up cities to rising sea levels yeah. and who gets compensated for having, having lived there. It's a very, I mean, it's very clear that that's also where Annalie's interest is coming from. Right. To think that, that you know... The loss and abandonment of cities is something that's going to enter our debates, our political debates before long. And they're having a pretty clear picture of what that looks like. What factors are going to influence that discussion of exactly. what survives. And yeah. who wins and who loses yeah. in these kinds of cases, because those are really, really central questions. Something that I sort of never put together, total dummy that I am. Everyone says that about you. But like, if you think about the fact that the people who died in Pompeii apparently were not the wealthy citizens, because like, while a pyroclastic flow is kind of swift, there was kind of grumblings going into it. And apparently like the rich people were like, hey, would you guys mind watching my house? Well, I'm going to relocate. <laughs> and so it's like, so yeah, like Billy Zane was probably there uh, holding, clutching a six-year-old. It's like, I gotta, get, I gotta get out of Pompeii. Definitely there. <laughs> Ugh, impossible not to love a man who calls himself a dummy in one breath and then uses the word pyroclastic in the next. <laughs> my affection knows no bounds. Um. Okay, well, should we take it to this bridge and hope that that bridge survives the coming turns of climate change i think that's that's the only chance we have <laughs> well we hope that you've been enjoying our um escapist frisson into the 90s up until this point and that now you can contemplate existentialism through the lens of the ancient world with us this week enjoy <laughs> enjoy <laughs> So, Ali, I, I'm wondering, maybe to start off with four lost cities, I feel like the, the question of gender is sort of always at the periphery of the story, but it's always there, right? It's always kind of woven in. Was that something that surprised you and sort of emerged during the research and the writing of the book? Or was that something that you brought to it from the beginning? I would say it was pretty deliberate on my part. I really wanted to write a book about ancient cities that looked at everyday life in the cities and looked at people who were actually doing a lot of the work of maintaining the city 
And so the more that I learned, the more it became clear that that would mean talking about women, talking about enslaved people, talking about uh, people who were kind of in a like a gray area between being enslaved and being free. Um, there's a lot of a lot of that in the ancient world. So, yeah, and I, I would seek out people to talk to who either had published about women's lives or published about gender in the ancient world and work to get their perspectives. And I think it made the book a lot more interesting. I learned so much stuff that you practically never hear about in archaeology. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing, right? You start the book by saying that, of course, these cities in some way were never lost, right? That, that you know, for cities, they sort of changed shape, they changed state. But this idea that like people abandon these cities and they're then forgotten until some intrepid Frenchman shows up and like, it's like, Gadzooks, there's a city there, you know, and they're like the monks living there, like, yeah, we know, we live yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> everyone in the area around here is well aware, well aware of the of city. This, yeah. <laughs> also, the people from China who visited like 100 yeah. years ago. And of course, that's <laughs> what it took a while for the penny to drop for me was that the way Europeans could tell themselves the story that they had discovered these ancient cities and that they were in fact lost and that they re often required Europeans to preserve them, right? Uh, or to rediscover them, quote unquote. Actually, had to do with the same kind of misperception we bring to archaeology in the first place, right? Where it's it's true, no one was building massive temples in Angkor anymore or was adding more houses to Chathahuyu. But people were doing the care work still, right? And so in some way, by foregrounding the like, who built that massive arch, right? Like, it was also the thing that allowed them to kind of pretend to find these things and pretend that they were lost. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're getting at is the fact that when we look at these ancient cities through the lens of archaeology, which is often a European inflected lens, because a lot of what we think of as archaeology grows out of European traditions, that what we look at is what are the biggest structures? What are the most important structures in a city? And, and important is almost always defined in terms of is it connected to commerce? Is it connected to um, a monumental structure? You know, I don't want to like reduce it to like a kind of a cheesy joke about like, we always look for the biggest, tallest, most phallic <laughs> item, but we do, you know, and it's, and that's often yeah. because those are the most obvious parts of the city. I mean, those are the things that often remain because they're made out of um, materials that aren't as perishable. But I also think it's a bias toward thinking of civilizations as basically being a reflection of a f of the 1% of this tiny minority of elites right. who are mobilizing labor who are definitely contributing wealth to the society but who are not in fact doing any of the work of maintenance or right. sustaining what people are building around them and so yeah i think it's it really skews how we look at cities in general, like even modern cities, you know, where we look to and the questions we ask, you know. Can you give us an example maybe with like something like Angkor? What's a thing that took archaeologists kind of a scandalously long time to figure out because we look at the, the big stuff? Yeah, I mean, Angkor is a really great example because this is a city that was um, fetishized by Europeans, I would say, when it was first brought to the attention of Europeans by a, a French adventurer. It became part of the World's Fair. You know, Europeans like stole a bunch of stuff, just cool statues and stuff to, to put out at the World's Fair. We always do. Yeah, we, we're, that is a European um, on-brand yeah. kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And um, it was heavily explored by Europeans. And one of the things about Angkorian architecture is that in the downtown area, there are these temple enclosures where the palaces were and all of the retinue, uh, all the people who are working in the palace, bureaucrats and you know servants. And so these temple enclosures to a European look like walled cities. They have moats around them. They have walls. They have large castles. And then they have all this area around the castles and the temples where people built uh, wooden houses, you know, more temporary structures. And so... Europeans would say, oh, well, it's it's a little European town, you know, maybe, I don't know, 2000 people lived here or something like that. Right. And that was because those were the kinds of towns they expected to see. And yet, at the same time, 
people who were reading the Sanskrit inscriptions on the walls kept coming across assertions about how, you know, up to a million people had lived in this place during kind of the heyday of the city, which was, you know, about a thousand years ago. And Europeans just dismissed it partly out of, I think, rank colonialist prejudice and partly, to be fair, because oftentimes inscriptions lie. And we know that from the European context, too. You know, we know that like every king who orders an inscription, you know, in Mesopotamia or in ancient Britain or whatever, you know, this is like, I was the greatest king. I had the most subjects. I had millions of people following me. And so there was, I think, the rational skepticism of saying like, well, just because it's written down doesn't mean it's true. But then there was also this just refusal to acknowledge that this city could have been as large as it was. And so it was only in the last 10 years that archaeologists were able to demonstrate that that 1 million number was true. And they did it by using very modern technology. They mounted a LIDAR device on a helicopter and took a survey run over this broad area around those temple enclosures. And what they learned was by looking at these minute differences in elevation on the ground using lasers, Mm. they were able to uncover roads and reservoirs and house foundations so that you could actually, because of the fact that LIDAR works really well at reading the landscape through tree cover, which of course most of what was once Angkor's kind of busy urban streets is now covered over in jungle, they were able to just see the city grid. And it's when you look at the LIDAR images, it's so amazing because it really just looks like a modern city. It's like, yep, there's all these roads. There's like all these east-west oriented houses. And so it became at that point just undisputed, you know, pretty much that this was a city of about a million people making it one of the biggest cities in the world at that time. And like I said, it was really ridiculous that it took so long to overturn overturn this European myth about it. So Annalie, I want to back it up a little bit. And I realize you have like a long and illustrious career, and this might be backing it up quite a ways, but you have a PhD in English and American studies. And I'm really <laughs> curious. I know you have like a storied career behind you as a science journalist, but I'm really curious how you became interested in archaeology and like sort of how you learned to speak this language when your training was in the humanities. Can you talk a little bit about like the origin story of like your deep nerd interest in archaeology? (laughs) Sure. No, I'd love to. Um, Well, first of all, archaeologists do consider themselves kind of part of the humanities, which was something that kept surprising me because I think of them as scientists because my humanities background is much less scientific than, than archaeology. You were not one of the English people who uses lasers on a regular basis? You know, I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I certainly was doing what we now call digital humanities, but that was about as cutting edge as, as it got. But what archaeologists share with people in the humanities, and I think the reason why any good archaeologist will kind of tell you, yeah, we're the humanities, but we work with scientists is that there's a lot of speculative analysis that goes on. And an archaeological site is a text. And archaeologists will refer to sites as palimpsests. That's a technical term, but also a descriptive term for what you see in the ground as you're digging down and you're looking at, often in a city context, it's layers of of housing. So you're looking down at the floor of a house, which is on top of the floor of a house, which is on top of the floor. So it's like, it really is a palimpsest. And as you're digging, you're like, am I on? Am I in this house? Am I in the next house? What does the size of the house mean? And they're having to extrapolate about the belief systems, the social practices, the lives of people based on little pieces of culture. Sometimes it's written. Sometimes it's art or symbolic. You know, it's figurines. Sometimes it's just garbage. You know, it's like they threw away an animal bone, they gnawed on it in a certain way, or they made cuts in it. And how do we interpret those? And so I think it's actually a lot more like coming home to my humanities background when I get into archaeology. But the thing that is glorious about archaeology that I never experienced in an English department is that archaeologists wholeheartedly embrace the scientific method They work hand-in-hand with scientists all the time. It is a field that has to be interdisciplinary. When I was getting my PhD, 
I was doing interdisciplinary work and it was very difficult to find a home for myself as an academic wanting to do this really dramatically interdisciplinary work because it's just not how academia is set up. You know, we're set up in departments and I actually went on job interviews where people would just kind of look at me like, what department do you think you should be in? (laughs) It's like you're studying film and you're doing audience reception studies and like all this stuff we don't understand. And they were right. You know, I just didn't fit into that schema. So I think the deep background is really just that kind of interpretive methodology, I guess. So fascinating. And it makes so much sense to think about space and structure in both of those different contexts. Like, Can you walk us through one of those extrapolations? You know, like I would love to like close read an archaeological find with you. Like what was a piece of evidence that you stumbled upon that you had to like interpret in that way that led you somewhere surprising? Oh, man. So I, you know, I did very little of my own interpretation. I was reporting on other people's interpretations. I rely on Adrian for almost all of my interpretations. (laughs) It's really helpful to outsource. Yeah, it's helpful to outsource. I mean, certainly, well, here, I'll give a good example. So the Neolithic site of Çatalhöyük in central Turkey, this is a site that's been very popularized. People, you know, are kind of fascinated by it. And because it's so ancient, a lot of what we know about it is pretty fragmentary. And the people who lived there did not have a written language that we recognize. So there's no There's no writing to either lie to us or tell us the truth about what was going on. And one of the choices that I made in writing the book was that I framed the exploration of this city in the context of the work done by Ruth Tringham, who is in anthropology at UC Berkeley. And she spent a number of years excavating at Chital, and she chose very deliberately to do an excavation of a single dwelling. And so what she wanted to focus on was not the whole city or who ruled the city or whether they worshipped goddesses or whatever. She was like, how did a single family live? And because of the fact that people at Chital buried their dead under their floors, it's easy to associate particular skeletons with a residence. And we assume that most of the people buried in the floor either lived there or were connected to the people who lived there. Maybe they were ancestors of the people who lived there. And so she found the matriarch of the house or what she interpreted as the matriarch of the house because uh, this woman was very old when she died. We know that she was probably one of the last people buried in the floor before the house was closed up. And there's evidence of children that died in the house and other individuals that lived there. And Ruth was able to learn a lot about this woman's life just from looking at her injuries. She lived to be quite old for someone in the Neolithic. She died in her 40s. And she had broken a rib and some other bones and that they had healed. And the kind of work that she would have done, getting water and food and stuff, would have required her to climb up and down ladders all the time because the city was built with doorways in people's roofs. So you'd climb a ladder to get to your roof and then climb another ladder to get down into the hearth area where you'd be cooking and and doing all kinds of other stuff. So I was really deeply interested in that approach to the city for a lot of reasons, partly because it reflected an interest in everyday life and how people just fed themselves and clothed themselves, but also because, you know, it allowed... Ruth Tringham to kind of turn this woman's life into a story. And she nicknamed her Dido. So she has a name. And Ruth has written a number of essays about sort of trying to connect to what this woman's psychological experiences would have been and what it would have been like for her to have a baby and and lose the baby because we know that she did, that there's a baby that was buried in the floor. I was very interested in her approach. And one of the things that Ruth Tringham is known for is for trying to do that approach to kind of create stories that are informed by data. And I found that the archaeologists whose projects I became most interested in often had that element to their work, like that they often would take a little flight of fancy, as it were, and try to to tell a story. Eric Poehler, who's an archaeologist who studies streets in Pompeii, like he literally just studies streets. He 
recreated the life of a guy who just drives a cart for a living. Like he's just a driver for some rich dude. Because we know enough about ancient Roman society, he was able to recreate like what traffic would have been like because there were traffic laws actually in Rome and, oh. and in Pompeii as well. I just love that. Like even if it's just a short little story about like, here's what Dido did in the morning and like here's like what kinds of tools she would have used to cook. The final thing I'll say about Dido that I think is super interesting is that it turns out that one of the greatest technological innovations at Chitalhoyuk was fired pottery because it meant that you could cook stew and it was a huge labor-saving device. You could stick all your ingredients into a fired clay pot, stick it over the fire and just let it bubble. And then you could go off and do other things. And it's for people who are cooking, which we kind of assume women were doing that kind of work, although that's purely extrapolation. We don't have any you know evidence other than from our own cultures. It meant that Dido would have like kind of lived through like a, a revolution, you know, like she would have been able to have like a better life than her grandmother's. And so I love thinking about that because I'm familiar with like our recent history, like in the 1950s in the States, where like a lot of labor saving devices like allowed women to the crock pot. Yeah, exactly. And or the Instapot now. <laughs> the ancient world's crock exactly. pot. Yeah. And so I love that by tracking the domestic life of a woman, it allows us to pull out and think about the technological innovations that are fueling this city and that are making the city attractive to new people to come there. And so that's my favorite kind of window on the past is, is that kind of window. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Totally. <laughs> my favorite window. <laughs> I find it so fascinating too that you kind of point out that like it made me think about like how easily one puts preconceived notions or projects preconceived notions onto these admittedly fairly blank canvases, as you say, that there's really just not a whole lot to go by. But like when you mentioned domestic labor in the book, right? The fact that the kind of domestic labor that would have been done in the house in Chatalhuyuk really straddles the way early 21st century gender roles would sort of assign those. Like it was, uh, you know, a, a definite like Home Depot kind of uh, element to it. Like they had to make everything themselves, meaning domestic labor really involved things that like felt pretty butch, right? So like, and I thought that it was really fascinating to think about that you, know, you hear domestic and yeah, we're back in the 50s with a you know housewife with her first vacuum cleaner, but that's kind of not what Dido would have experienced. Uh, it's quite possible that she was pretty good at making blades, for instance, right? Or like, yeah. She definitely would have been making blades. I mean, as you said, like domestic labor was labor, was the vast majority of the labor at Chitalhoyuk because the other big technological innovation was just sedentary life, like having a house with, with permanent walls, which is like, whoa, if you've been a nomad for thousands of years. So... Yeah, I mean, they would have been making their own clothes, they would have been making needle and thread, they would have been making um, their own hearth, they would have been painting their own walls all the time. And we also have a pretty, this goes into your goddess comment earlier, but one of the ways that Chitalhoyuk has been read over the years is as a place where women had positions of authority or even were worshipped. When the first... European excavators came in the 1960s. The site was being excavated by this fellow, James Mellart, British guy. And he found these figurines that are now, I think they're often called the Venus figurines. Uh, probably a lot of people have seen them. They're these fat women with large breasts. And they're like, sometimes they don't have heads, but they're basically just sort of really prosperous ladies, uh, you might say. And They've been interpreted as fertility symbols, and Mellart thought that they were goddesses. Mm -hmm. And my favorite part is like his rationale was that, you know, these women, these naked women with these really imposing bodies looked so strong that he just couldn't believe that the civilization that produced them wasn't kind of worshiping them because he couldn't imagine a society that had naked women in it that looked so powerful that it just, it had to be, he felt that it had to be an inversion of our society, that it had to be women on top and men on the bottom and not that it was some other thing. And now in the world now, the way that these figures are interpreted is much more as 
maybe these women were elders in the community, or maybe the act of making these figurines was itself a kind of domestic magic, that there was something about them that, you know, gave good luck or that you did a spell on them, because oftentimes they were made very quickly and then thrown away as if they kind of were used up and then tossed aside. But I will say that the fact that powerful women figurines are so ubiquitous at Chautauquaiuk is another reason why people believe that women may have had an equal position to men at Chital, or at least that they were given leadership positions alongside men. The other piece of evidence is that we see a lot of people preserving the skulls of women. Remember, people are burying their dead under the floor. Mm -hmm. Well, they also unbury the dead and pull out the skulls and plaster the skulls and turn them into, you know, objects of fascination, worship, we don't know. But roughly equal numbers of male and female skulls are given this like fancy treatment. So again, Mm. Ian Hodder, who ran the site for many years, who teaches at Stanford, he believes that that's a sign of a somewhat egalitarian society. It's interesting, right? I don't think you come out and say it in the book, but there's kind of a suggestion that Mellard thought implicitly that a man must have made these images and therefore, right, he must have worshipped the goddess as opposed to like, maybe anyone of any gender could make these. And, you know, for maybe the making of it was, given that the range of activities were not easily mapped onto, again, sort of our Levittown kind of understanding of how gendered spheres operate, right? Like, he seems to have really come in and sort of been like, well, obviously a dude made this because I'm holding it in my hand. Yeah. And it's not a stew, which is what a woman would have made. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, you know, I'm sure that that was Mellart's, you know, personal sexism, but it was also just kind of the received wisdom. It was what he'd been taught right. in school. And um, he just right. wasn't able to think outside that box. Male dominated learning at Stanford. I can't even imagine such a thing. I mean, who could possibly even envision <laughs> such a reality? <laughs> You know, the one thing I I will say in defense of male-dominated learning at Stanford is that Ian Hodder, who ran the site for many years, he was James Mellart's student, and Ian ran the site really differently. He's the guy who kind of put a stop to the whole, like, goddess worship analysis. He's been incredibly supportive of women working at the site. He's the person who gave Ruth Tringham the opportunity to work there. So, you know, he's done a pretty darn good job trying to turn it around. So what you're saying is there are men who are trustworthy? I don't know. I don't know, Annalise. Shout out to one dude. (laughs) There might be one. (laughs) Just saying, he's been pretty cool. (laughs) Shout out to Ian Hahn. You know, so like, I couldn't, I have, I know you live in San Francisco, as do Adrian and I, and that some of the resonances of your book were just so loud, you know, in their residence to San Francisco. And I want to hear kind of your thoughts on that. But like, for example, when you were talking about distinguishing between basically studying sites of public life and sites of private life, when the public life sites are maybe much more prominent, like I could not stop thinking about the Salesforce Tower, like at all. (laughs) What are archaeologists in 2000 years going to find when whatever would make you think of that? (laughs) (laughs) Like when they find San Francisco buried underneath the Pacific Ocean, you know, however much longer for now. But Annalie, like what really jumped out to you as you were doing this research in terms of those resonances between the contemporary era and this ancient world? Like I could see that narrative engine motivating a lot of the way the story was told, but I'm curious what really jumped out at you. Yeah, I mean, what jumped out at me for sure was the fact that A lot of these cities, all of these cities in the book, were ultimately rejected by their inhabitants because of some kind of climate disaster or some kind of infrastructure destruction, which is infrastructure destruction is generally related to some kind of climate disaster um, or just really poor maintenance. And that that was always coupled with political instability. And I couldn't help but notice (laughs) that, um, (laughs) you know, that, you know, throughout the time I was writing this book, of course, um, we were going through both in the United States. And arguably, we still are. I mean, obviously, climate change hasn't gone away. But I think that politically, I think we're slightly more stable now than we were. We've been without a coup for four months. I mean, where's our medal? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, So I think I shouldn't 
say like, oh, everything is fine now because I do feel like politics are still really unstable. And of course, in the rest of the world, um, you know, many countries are going through the same problems that we have been with authoritarianism and neglect of infrastructure in the face of dramatic, you know, dramatic weather patterns that are made more common by climate change. So I think I kept feeling like as I was writing, I really hope that people are going to pay attention to this and realize that actually the solution to our problems is not to invent AI that will solve everything, but actually just to repair the sewers, Um, you know, like that that's actually a huge, huge thing for civilization and that it actually is not rocket science to run a city. It's really like basic engineering and even more importantly, it's treating workers well, you know, that the people who who build our cities and who maintain our cities, you know, they're often government employees, they're often manual laborers. And these are all the people who've been feeling the squeeze and um, have been really abused, especially during this pandemic. And so, yeah, I kept thinking about how when you walk through a city you know, if you're walking through San Francisco and you're following some kind of tour guide or you're following, you know, a tour in a book, you're invited to look at everything except for how the city actually runs. Right. You know, like, look at these monuments, look at these, you know, beautiful vistas, but not like, hey, check out where everybody's repairing, um, you know, where everybody's building on Treasure Island. You know, what does that look like? And who are those people that are doing that? You know, instead, it's like, who's the mayor? You know, it's like, okay, that's nice. I'm glad we have a mayor, you know, and a city council and all that. But like, or board of supervisors, I should say. But, um, you know, there's also all of these people who are actually making sure that when you you flush your toilet, you aren't like sprayed with shit. And like, <laughs> when you, you know, walk out the door, your sidewalk doesn't have like, you know, a giant pothole in it. That's definitely like what I started thinking about a lot more is just straight mm-hmm. up infrastructure questions like, what are we going to do about water? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Laura, I don't know if you had the same experience that I did, you know, so I, I know that you've been living with this book, obviously a lot longer than, than the two of us have. For me, one of the things that I really noticed was the investment also in a certain narrative of abandonment. Yeah. And I had to think of this. So for our listeners who are not in San Francisco, you should know that San Francisco is dying. Always. It is a land abandoned. We are told it's being abandoned. All the value creators and job people uh, are leaving for Miami and San Francisco is over. P.S. Have either of you known an actual human person who has moved to Miami yet? I I literally don't know a single person who has moved to Miami. There appear to have been like a hundred of them. It literally is like a hundred people. Yeah. It really struck me. I sort of ended up underlining every time you sort of say like, it's weird. We somehow bought into this this narrative that everyone just kind of fled this place, like in that kind of Thomas Cole course of empire thing. It's like, well, this place is so over. So <laughs> yeah, we're now done. We, 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 or, or we all get murdered by the vandals. Like, fuck it, we're out. And you make up the point again and again. Abandonment does not look the way we think it does. It's about no longer being able to maintain certain things or maintaining them differently or changing the way you do things such that you require suddenly more space and less people can be sustained by a space. Can you say a little bit about what's our investment in this kind of narrative of like precipitous kind of decline, fall of Rome kind of shit? Why is that among a certain set in San Francisco, let's say, noticeable, right? It was not that like, oh no, you know, working people are leaving the city in droves, which they have been for like, Mm -hmm. you know, years now. It's like, this shitty 20-something, you know, VC left because he met a homeless at the Safeway. Um, like, why is it so powerful if, like, this kind of idea of precipitous, sudden, cataclysmic mm. decline? I mean, I think there's there's two things. I mean, it's a really good question, and it is kind of at the heart of the book. It's, on one hand, it's a very reassuring narrative because it makes the abandonment of a city it means that there's, in a sense, almost no agency behind it, that it's just a kind of act of God or an act of fate, you know? And it's like, sometimes we like blame barbarians at the gates who are kind of vaguely sketched in or, or something else. But the idea that there's this sudden collapse 
that's accompanied by like mass death or like just people like running away, fleeing. It allows you to hand wave away a lot of the reasons why cities fall apart. And those often go back to politics. Certainly, I mean, one of the cities I talk about in the book is Pompeii. And of course, it was not political will that caused Vesuvius to erupt. But in most cases, it really is a political failure that leads to abandonment, you know, that there are elites who just stop putting money into maintaining the infrastructure or stop investing labor power in that. Or they, like many elites, often just abandon cities um, when, you know, the going gets tough, leaving behind a whole bunch of people who still live there. This goes into one of the main, I guess, um, myth-busting parts of this book, which is that when cities are abandoned, it usually takes about 100 years and, and often longer than that, often much longer, depending on, you know, if you're talking about like Chitalhoyuk, which was occupied for almost 1500 years, you know, the abandonment there was like a really long time. It was like centuries right, right. Of, of it getting smaller and smaller. And even Angkor, it took about 100 years for the city to really no longer feel urban, you know, like it emptied out enough that it, it felt more like a bunch of villages. And so I think that, you know, we'd much rather hear a story in a sense about a city just collapsing than hear a story of like, well, they didn't repair the sewers and then they stopped repairing the sidewalks and then that made it harder for everyone to get to work. And then there were fewer places to work. And then when, you know, no businesses wanted to be next to this sidewalk that was broken. And so those businesses left. And it's like this slow kind of, you know, trickle of people leaving each person making their own choice. You know, it's it's a choice to leave. It's not like, you know, you're being chased by ghosts or something. But that's a, a comforting narrative to imagine kind of being chased by ghosts in a sense, or, yeah. or that there's some horrible, unavoidable thing. No one could have done anything about it. We all just left. You know, it was like there was just nothing we could do. And it's an abdication of responsibility in a sense. And then I would say just as kind of a coda to that, the other reason why I think we're drawn to these collapse narratives goes back to what I was saying earlier about thinking about cities as being manifestations of the elite, because it is true that elite classes will blow that taco stand if they can, right? If the city right. is like no longer providing them with like daily foot rubs and like, you know, a cushy spot, you know, they have the means to go somewhere else. They can move to New Mexico or wherever they're going, right? New Zealand, I think. New Zealand or leave Angkor and go to Phnom Penh in the case of, of right. that particular event. And so, again, I mean, yes, you, you sometimes see with cities like a, an elite class kind of leaving, but the city is still full of people. And so that's, again, that goes back to why do you pay attention to the people who actually maintain the city? Because those are the people who live there and stay there and work on the city. I was so struck by your discussion of Cahokia, right? And the fact that East St. Louis which is just down the road and the fact that that's a space that is similarly being abandoned by the elites in our lifetime, right? And given up in ways that eerily echo what you described for all four of your quote-unquote lost cities. And I guess that that's the other thing, right? Like we don't want to look at these places and get a glimmer of recognition of like, oh shit, this is uh, exactly what we're doing to mid-market. We want to hear like, well, no, we don't have, surely the barbarians would not get through the gates in our case, you know, surely if we build three more Salesforce towers, we'll turn this, this city right around or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or you do hear that exact narrative about the barbarians at the gates, because to, right. to go back to the St. Louis example, like, absolutely, if you look at the conservative framing of the Black Lives Matter movement, it is barbarians at the gates. Right. A hundred percent. Right. It is that lie, that myth that these are people who are not from here. They're outsiders. They're agitators. 
And in fact, the reality is those are the people who live in those cities. Right. And have for longer. Yeah. You know, they're they're rising up at the gates of the palaces and the banks. And, you know, so do we know how far the now infamous gun waving lawyer couple lives to Cahokia? This would be fascinating. To know. I don't know. <laughs> God, it's kind of the perfect meme for that. Though. Yeah, it's wa it's walking distance probably, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's a weird thing to think about. But yeah, I think I mean Cahokia is in this place where we have such a long history of urban development and abandonment and transformation. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because it's just on this obvious transit network, you know, on the along the Mississippi and and the Missouri. Right. And I definitely in the book and also when I was there experiencing it it was so clear that there was this parallel, this kind of uncanny echo of what had happened at Cahokia or what we what we imagine has happened at Cahokia mm -hmm. based on our reading of the of the urban plan. And one of the things that I found super fascinating was that at Cahokia, when it seems that tensions were were kind of brewing in the city, there was a giant fence built around the downtown area the downtown area being this massive earthen mound called Monk's Mound. And so whoever was in charge of that part of the city, you know, 900 years ago, at a certain point was like, let's build a giant fence all the way around this mound and all the way around the plaza and a bunch of other areas adjacent to the mound. There hadn't been a fence there before. And shortly after that fence is built, we see the city really shift. We see like a huge transformation in the urban layout. But the thing that I thought was so freaking weird is that I learned that St. Louis was the first city in the U.S. or one of the first to invent gated communities. Wow. And I was like, wow, <laughs> such a weird parallel. But it was that was what was happening at Cahokia is they were like installing a gated community in this downtown elite area or we think it was an elite area because of the you know whole giant mound thing. Right. So yeah, so this is a, a region of the country that keeps reinventing the idea of like, if we build a, a gate and a fence, we can keep our special elite area safe from those evil barbarians that keep asking for more stuff. Oh gosh, it's like on its third era of gatekeeping in the middle of the country. <laughs> That's so it fascinating. Really, it is. And it really, it's it's weird how these things, it's like the repressed returning keeps yeah. happening. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Bad patterns. <laughs> yes. Echoing throughout civilization. So Annalie, like you just finished a big book project. Like, are you at the fun brain place yet where you get to like cheat on that idea with new ideas like are you working on do you know what I mean like when you're deep in a book project and you're fantasizing I'm never cheating because I'm I'm totally polyamorous Ooh. with my books right so I'm like always doing like multiple books That's at the process. same time and yeah we you know we have open conversations about our relationships and so the books are okay with it um That's very helpful. and yeah, it's very, yeah, I feel like communication is the key. So I'm actually almost finished with my next novel, which is actually in many ways a novel about city building and government building and, and nation building on another planet. So, so there's definitely cities on this other planet that people that astute readers of Four Lost Cities may recognize. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, there's definitely like some fun sort of Easter eggs in there. Um so yeah, and that'll be that book will be out next year, probably late next year. So well, that that brings up something really interesting for me because I mean I I also know you of course as one of the founders of IO Nine, and the first book was on was on on cinema, and of course the way we think about urban space is so deeply influenced by the novels we read and especially the films we watch, and I could think of like a million that sort of tell declinist stories in ways that are the kind of false narrative that you puncture in Four Lost Cities. You know, from like basically anything Christopher Nolan has ever done to, you know, uh, to, you know, that thing with Will Smith where he lives. Uh, I am legend, I guess, where he lives oh, yeah. alone in New York. Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, he's literally the only guy there. Like that's a, a fantasy of abandonment, uh, races to the nth degree. Are there any movies that you think like, hey, these people get declined right? Where, where you're just kind of like, this is something that understands what this looks like and what it doesn't look like? Hmm. That's a really good question. You know, maybe I won't 
name a movie because I think it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think that the multi-generational epic is a great way to represent this kind of stuff. And I think, I mean, actually the book that I'm doing now is a multi-generational epic. And I think, you know, people like Kim Stanley Robinson and Leckie, who does a great job of kind of showing like these massive historical shifts Those are good examples. Obviously, N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth series, I think, is such a good example of that. So I think we have some good literary examples. And then I suspect that I'm trying to think of like, I feel like there's TV series that do a good job of thinking about these things. I mean, for all their flaws, Star Trek and Star Wars both try to give us like a dense history like that sort of explores how especially in the mandalorian recent uh, star wars show we kind of get a sense of this really long historical period where there have been moments where people really were urbanized and then they kind of scattered and civilizations kind of became central and then were marginalized again and i think That's kind of the way to do it is to kind of give your reader that historical sweep or give your audience that sense of how things happen slowly. I mean, you can still make that exciting by kind of hinting at all this history and then kind of coming down at one of the points where everything is really fucked up. And so then it's really action packed because it's like at some inflection point. But I think I think the multi-generational epic might be the main genre that can kind of handle the reality of civilizational transformation. Right. Zola, right, sort of being a classic case of that. But then, yeah, you're right, that in science fiction too. I mean, like there's, I guess what it makes me think of, and this is kind of maybe an obvious point, but I hadn't thought about it in those terms, of course, also part of why we grow up with so many, especially now, images of collapse that are this kind of this heightened thing. I will only say, you know, giant sky laser, right? Like, is that, that it's cool looking, right? And it's, I mean, again, we live in San Francisco, a city that Hollywood loves to destroy. And I always tell my students when I teach about cities, which is... When you teach The Rock, just say it, Adrian. When you teach your film studies class on The Rock. Oh, I teach I teach a class on capital cities and Annalise been, been in it. Yeah. And one of the things I always say to them is like, think about how much pleasure it clearly occasions for certain people to imagine San Francisco and LA and New York destroyed. Now think of who lives in San Francisco, L.A., and New York. You don't see, you know, like Salt Lake City getting obliterated constantly. Just saying, right? Like there is a kind of there is a kind of joy in that kind of destruction, precisely because it's kind of other people, right? It's always like you know hilarious gay stereotypes running away from a from a, the meteor as it slams into you know mm-hmm. Twin Peaks or whatever, or you know the rock saving his one dog as a tsunami massacres just about everyone else in the city. You know, if you're going to drop a meteor, you might as well hit as many Nobel laureates as you possibly can. And like, you know, no better place than the (laughs) Bay Area. I mean, I think that the, and and I mean, you see this in kaiju movies as well, which is like one of my favorite subgenres. And I just watched, um, Godzilla versus Kong. I did too. Um, which Poor Hong uh, Kong. It really took it on Kong, the chin. That one. Also, Kong was like ripped. Like that was so weird. He's supposed to have a belly. Like I was like, this is like <laughs> Kong's been that. doing like, I don't know. He's been yeah. doing crunches or something. But um, yeah. I think, I mean, there's a pleasure in destroying cities because of the fact that partly what you're saying, absolutely true. Like we want to destroy like the liberal elite. And there's definitely that element of just like, can we just please get rid of all these gay people and Jewish people and like brown people and whatever. But I think there's also a genuine kind of utopian wish buried in there to to get kind of Frederick Jameson on your ass about it, because I think cities are frustrating, right? Like they're, they're dirty, We feel as city dwellers, like we don't have control over our environment. We feel like our government, our city government doesn't respond to us. You know, things are are stinky. We have annoying neighbors. Like there's a lot of reasons why city life um, makes us mad. And so there is that kind of pleasure and just like, well, just wreck it all. Like just, oh, I'm so sick of it. And I think that's what kaiju movies do really well is that and they and the fact that it's these silly looking monsters like 
kind of underlines the fact that this is like it's a kid fantasy and we're allowed to have kid fantasies we're allowed to like want to smash all our blocks like that's fine and it's understandable so i think that the flip side of the love of cities like there's always a hatred in there like we're always simultaneously in love with our cities and like want to kill them so yeah my my favorite moment in that movie is tiny, but I I couldn't stop laughing. I rewound the screen just to just to to watch it again. Is as the I think it's at that point three monsters are just kind of wailing on each other. They're these people who appear to be in, on on top of a skyscraper in some kind of cafe, and they like start running. I'm like now you start no. running. <laughs> They've been tearing your city apart, and you're like, well, we gotta finish the we gotta finish the coffee. It was like eight. Hey, Bucks, I was like, honestly, that Typical probably would have been me. Typical city dwellers. Like, yeah, I'd be sitting at like four barrel and be like, I mean, unless the kaiju is like on 16th Street, I'm going to finish this $7 yeah, latte. Sure. Also, like, I mean, <laughs> let's face it, like city dwellers are used to seeing a lot of crazy I shit, know. you know, and especially in San Francisco, like when we're not in pandemic times, like sometimes it would be like. I'd like look out at the horizon and there'd be like, it looked like fireworks or like there'd be lights blazing everywhere and some building looks like it's throbbing. And you're like, why is the, what is that? Oh, it must just be a party. It's not, can't be a kaiju. (laughs) (laughs) So then you wait until the building actually turns out to be a kaiju that's about to crush you. And so that's, yeah, maybe start running. Right. <laughs> I know. I thought it was just like a. I thought it was just like a giant robot that was made by SRL. Yeah. Like you know, it could is it, be. Is it uh, what's it called? Is it Dreamforce already? <laughs> You're like, and I thought it was just Critical Mass. Is it the Folsom yeah. Street Fair this weekend? Like, yeah. Well, I mean, we actually do have a building that, like, the Salesforce Tower, like you said, that had Sauron's burning yep. eye on the top of yep. it during Halloween. Yeah. So. I mean, one thing that one movie that does yeah. do this kind of joy thing really well is one I mentioned earlier and I don't know why I'm thinking about this, the, the Will Smith, I am legend, right? Where like in the beginning, he is the only guy in New York and he, the only living boy mm-hmm. in New York. And he is just like racing up and down Broadway and hunting gazelle and like on like Times Square. And it's like, yeah, that's like, there's something about that movie. I mean, the rest of it's not very good, but that really captures something about like getting to use, part of the fantasy is to get to use urban space in ways that feel unrestricted in a way that, the true experience of urbanity is it's always about limitations, always about, as, as you say in the book, it's all about privacy. It's about things that like shouldn't be part of the, the common life, but are or, or vice versa can't be part of the common life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the reason why those images from I Am Legend, which I think were kind of just ripped off from Alan Wiseman's book, The World Without Us. Right. It, again, that's a kind of a utopian wish, right? For a city yeah, that yeah. is part of nature, you know, like I think almost every human being wants to see more nature and especially if they're not at its mercy. And so, yeah, those images are so compelling. We We want green cities. And so that I take a lot of hope from that. I feel like our pop culture often expresses these utopian wishes that we don't acknowledge very often. Right. And, right. you know, you can be pissed off at a city, but at the same time have an idea of how it could be better. And part of it would be, like you said, getting to have more control over the city's landscape, getting to use the city more the way you wish. And then part of it can be inviting nature back into the city or inviting plants and animals back into the city that aren't just human Mm -hmm. or rats so and that i mean we're doing that in san francisco now like there's so many more hawks in the city like it's amazing so many more hawks i have um a relationship with a murder of crows in a local park that i will not name and i have noticed so many more hawks. i have witnessed this yeah adrian has witnessed this yeah well i also am friends with some local crows and i love when they mob the hawks because they're all you know like there's just like a whole drama happening and but there's also like coyotes in the city now. Huge and like, ass coyotes. There's a bee highway going through the through the yeah. city now, I believe, right? I had to like snatch my three-year-old and run in a park recently because I saw the hugest coyote. And it wasn't so much that I was afraid the coyote was going to rush at us as I was afraid my three-year-old would rush at the coyote. Yeah. That's very much <laughs> oh, yeah. his personality. But it was like, yeah, it was weird sensation of like parts of nature cracking back into the urban space 
that were previously excluded. Yeah. And we even mm-hmm. have like an otter. And so there could be more otters soon, um, which would be great because oh. they do all kinds of good things in the environment. They do. Yeah. yeah. Did you guys see that weird YouTube video that was in Golden Gate Park where this guy is with his little kid and all these like raccoons start coming out? No. And it's amazing. You have to just Google it. So it's a guy with his kid and he's like, they're going along and they, they see like one raccoon. And he's like, oh, look, it's a raccoon. And then another one comes out and then another one comes out. And he's like, oh, Oh, I think I found this. (laughs) He starts to get really worried. Let me tell you, this this urban raccoons are no effing joke. Like, I don't want to verge into exactly the kind of like sort of vaguely xenophobic talk that we were just decrying. But like, they are fearless, those urban raccoons. Like, I grew up in the Midwest where... You could usually safely assume that an animal was going to be more afraid of you than than the other way around. And that is not the case with the raccoons I've encountered here in this great city by the bay. Oh, yeah, I found the I found the video. I'll put it into chat for you guys. Please follow up with that and your local crow info. Please. Yeah, it'll be in our in the episode notes. In the episode notes. Yeah, exactly. Very important um, <laughs> material. Um, well, I feel like we have to let you go write 15 or 20 yeah. other books, Annalie. But I'm so glad we got to talk to you about this, at least this one. And we, we kind of verged into a couple others. Too. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Well, good luck with the writing. And um, I can't wait to read your novel when it comes out. I can't wait to show you it. (laughs) All right. Bye now. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.